0: on rare is a podcast developed by bridge bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds their views and opinions don't necessarily reflect the views and policy of bridge bio pharma now we hope you enjoy the podcast
1: Welcome to OnRare, a rare disease podcast produced by BridgeBio, a biotech company that focuses on developing treatments for rare diseases. At OnRare, we explore what it's like to live with a rare disease, from getting a diagnosis to the challenges of daily life. OnRare gives us a really unique opportunity to listen and learn from the true experts, people living with rare conditions. I'm your host, Mandy Rorig, a member of the patient advocacy team, and I'm joined by my colleague, David Rintel head of patient advocacy. Today, we're talking with Jessica, who's living with a rare condition called autosomal dominant hypocalcemia type 1, or better known as ADH1.
2: I really don't know that much about ADH1, Mandy, and I'm I'm looking forward to speaking to Jessica and learning what it's like to live with ADH1. In order to learn more, let's first talk to my colleague, Dr. Mary Scott Roberts, an expert on ADH1. She's a pediatric endocrinologist, and she's also the executive director of clinical development at CalCylytics, the bridge bio company that is working on ADH1. So Mary Scott, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, ADH1 is a complicated condition, and could you please uh, explain it to us?
0: Yes, I'll try my best. And I think before we get into the details of autosomal dominant hypocalcemia type 1, or ADH1, it would be helpful to first understand the role of calcium in all of our bodies. There are a number of different substances that are important for our body to function normally as it does every day. And one of those is calcium. And this is incredibly important that we have enough calcium in our bodies, of course, to make our bones strong, our teeth strong, but also to help our muscles work normally, our nerves to function, our heart uh, to beat in a normal pattern. And we don't want calcium that's too high or calcium that's too low. And so one of the ways that our body tries to regulate calcium, and we have a protein, it's called the calcium sensing receptor. It's constantly detecting and measuring the calcium in our body and making sure that it's in the nice, normal range. The parathyroid glands are small glands um, located in our neck, and they make a hormone called parathyroid hormone that works to increase blood calcium levels. So when our calcium levels drop, the calcium-sensing receptor signals to the parathyroid gland and tells the gland to make more hormone so that we can bring our calcium levels back up. At the same time, this calcium-sensing receptor tells our kidneys to hold on to as much calcium as possible and not to lose it in the urine. And so taken together, this signaling keeps our blood calcium in a nice, normal range.
2: So, when everything is functioning correctly, our bodies measure the amount of calcium in the blood, and if there is not enough calcium in the blood, the parathyroid is instructed to produce more parathyroid hormone to retain more calcium. And it also signals the kidney to retain calcium because we need more of it. Is that correct?
0: That's exactly right. Thank you for the summary.
2: It's kind of like if the gas gauge on your car doesn't work, so you're running out of gas, and instead of signaling the driver to stop at a gas station, it tells the driver to just keep going, and it results in you running out of gas.
0: I think that's a really, a really nice analogy.
2: And what happens then to someone who's run out of gas or, in this case, has a very low calcium level?
0: Well, if you have a low blood calcium level, you often have muscle cramps and muscle spasms, which, as you can imagine, can be quite painful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they can involve most of the muscles Mm -hmm. in the body. This is something Mm -hmm. called tetany. Um, Other patients experience symptoms related to the nerve function. So they have numbness that often occurs around their mouth. They have a burning or a prickling sensation, usually in the hands and the feet. This is called paresthesias, and even seizures can occur because of low blood calcium levels. And I think another thing that really impacts the life and the function of these patients with ADH1 is something called brain fog or difficulty concentrating or thinking clearly, as well as increased fatigue.
2: This sounds... Like, it, it can be very challenging to people living with ADH1 and could be very serious.
0: You're exactly right. And I think another important thing to mention is that the extra calcium can cause buildup of calcium in the kidneys themselves. And this can lead to kidney stones, which are also very painful. And it can also cause damage to the kidney's ability to function normally.
2: So the consequences of low calcium are... A, very uncomfortable, and B, very serious, can be very serious. And of course, seizures, very serious, and brain fog or, you know, inability to concentrate is also really limiting. It's a story about calcium. Right. I wonder uh, if you could tell us how it's usually diagnosed.
0: It really depends on the patient, David. There are some patients who present early in life with seizures and are diagnosed with low calcium, low parathyroid hormone, and then at that time, they may be diagnosed with ADH1 if genetic testing is performed. Other times, patients carry the diagnosis of hypoparathyroidism, and they're not certain what the underlying cause is until later in life. Um, I can think of other examples where adult patients might be diagnosed after their child receives the diagnosis of ADH1, and then they in fact also have ADH1 and didn't realize the tingling and the muscle cramps that they had experienced.
2: Thank you for that background. I think we are now much more prepared to hear from Jessica, a person living with ADH1, and understand what's causing the symptoms that she's going to be describing to us and the changes in her life. So thank you very much, Mary Scott. This has been enormously helpful. And now I'd like to introduce Jessica, a young woman living with autosomal dominant hypocalcemia type 1. How are you, Jessica?
1: I am doing well. How are you, David?
2: Good, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourself, just about your life. You're a person, you're not just a patient with ADH1, and I think that's really important to know more about you.
3: Absolutely. So, I'm currently on the East Coast in Pennsylvania. That's where I reside. I work in the mental health field. I work for the county as well as a big region insurance company, ensuring that mental health and physical health needs are met for my clients. I'm currently also 30 weeks pregnant. So that's also a big thing, um, having ADHD 1 and navigating pregnancy.
2: Congratulations. That's wonderful news. Thank you. And we'd be interested in hearing about pregnancy and ADH1. Oh,
3: absolutely. It's been a whirlwind.
2: Wow. And thank you for your very important work in mental health, also, that uh, these days, even more than ever, we recognize the importance of mental health care. So, where does the ADH1 story begin for you? What were the first uh, signs that there was something going on?
3: Right. So this is probably the truest origin story I feel like anyone could have. I was diagnosed with ADH1. um, Well, actually just hypopara at that time um, when I was about like eight minutes old at birth. The doctors noticed that my calcium was extremely low. I was about a month early anyway, and I was actually very healthy. Like there was like, I was almost 10 pounds. I was a very healthy baby. So that was awesome being early. Um, But they noticed my calcium was low and A pediatrician was on call at the time and she tested my calcium and my PTH and she saw how low the hormone was. So she automatically knew what I had. So that's really where it started for me, at least with the calcium PTH journey.
2: In the very beginning and you were diagnosed, you said hypopara. So is that?
3: Hypoparathyroidism. Yeah. That's when I was diagnosed um, because they didn't do no genetic testing at that time Mm -hmm. due to them not really knowing why I had it. because. There's no family history mm-hmm. of hypoparathyroidism in my whole family, both sides. So it was kind of puzzling. Mm-hmm. A few years after that, I did get tested for like any type of gene mutation, and that is where they really located the ADH1 with the CASR gene mutation, the calcium receptor gene.
2: So that is really the origin story from the very beginning, is and very astute of the pediatrician to catch that. So- What do you know about your infancy and what kind of care you needed or how it affected you at that time?
3: So thankfully my mom kept every single file paperwork. I mean, she has a whole filing cabinet of every medicine I've ever been on, doctor, things like that. So. I know I was started on roll caltural pretty much right off the bat um, to maintain the calcium. Um, That was working pretty well up until I want to say it was like I was two or three. And that's when my mom started noticing me going into tetany, which is when the calcium drops and my muscles lock up. And what was funny is she had my doctor on speed dial, thankfully, and she beeped my doctor. I mean, it was the 90s, right? She beeped her. And the doctor was so excited because I was finally showing signs that I was low versus high, which is Mm -hmm. huge because now she was able to really adjust me accordingly. You know, I was on roll Couch Roll and calcium supplements, like calcium chews. I remember vividly in pre K having to take these calcium chocolate chews, and I would run from my mom because they were horrendous. I was doing okay. However, Around like pre-K age, I passed my first kidney stone, which is when I was then diagnosed with the nephrocalcinosis due to the sensor, the calcium sensor also Mm. being damaged on my kidneys. Mm. So that's when it started becoming more of a, I guess, a hassle for the doctors because to maintain a good calcium level for me, but also avoiding damaging my kidneys any further because during the ultrasound, when I was diagnosed, the urologist was like, there's nothing that we can do for her moving forward. Uh It's, it's calcifying, you know, she's not eligible for a transplant because her body, you know, it's not worth it. So I know from talking to my mom, you know, hearing that, you know, her five-year-old, her four-year-old is pretty much dying you know that's what the doctor was pretty much saying there's no hope for her kidneys there's nothing we can do she started working with my pediatric endocrinologist to look at other options and at that time there was some stuff going on actually over in iceland which has a pretty big adh1 population Mm -hmm. and she pretty much almost had me in a protocol over there Um, she was getting ready to relocate myself and her and my dad was going to stay back in the states and work and send money Mm -hmm. and then we got a call from the National Institute of Health and they approved me to be one of the first children to start on the mm-hmm. HPTH, which is a synthetic variation of the PTH hormone via injection. And that's really when I started to noticing my overall quality of life improve um, dramatically.
2: Wow. So Jessica, you um, this started early and you started to have complications also as a very young child. Mm-hmm. And just because most of us are pretty unfamiliar with ADH1, I just want to go back and first ask you, you said you had and which was your muscles locking up. Can mm-hmm. you just explain what you recall about that?
3: Absolutely. So what happens is when our calcium drops, our muscles and like our extremities, our face, and even like our throat can close up. It's like lock jaw times 10. I remember like there's videos of me in tetany, and I'm like army crawling because I can't even stand because my feet are turned inward. My hands are pretty much looking like claws and it is very painful. It feels like Charlie horses. And as a young child, you know, that was always the big fear was going into tetany. And, you know, my mom was always so concerned, especially with me being at school, you know, having the teachers aware if you start seeing signs of the tetany or the tingling in the hands, which precursors the muscle spasms to have milk on by or a Tums or things like that.
2: And you would take a Tums because of the calcium in it,
3: because mm-hmm, it would automatically boost me up really quickly. But wow. give or wow. take, because the Tums is was very hard is very hard on kidneys for the calcium, so it was yeah. kind of got to outweigh a little bit. It's a balancing act, literally. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. kind of a tightrope walk to get the right levels. Did that occur very frequently? The tetany.
3: It did. It's I, I vividly remember it occurring pretty often throughout my childhood. Um, which I mean, if you think about it, growing constantly, height changes, weight changes, all these different changes occurring, your levels are going to be adjusting constantly.
2: And a kidney stone has got to be very painful. And I wonder if you recall when that when you had that. And
3: yeah, I I remember feeling um, just like doubling over in pain. Um, My mom honestly thought maybe it might've been like appendicitis or something like that, because typically you don't think kidney stone. And what was funny is we were actually doing a 24 hour urine collection at that time anyway, for just like a monthly check. And that's when I actually passed it. So she was hearing the stone drop into the hat.
2: Wow. Wow. Incredible. I have to say you were a child and, you know, living your life and that must have been a very difficult period for your mother. And in particular, when she was told there's no hope for Jessica, and then witnessing some of these symptoms must be just truly frightening for a parent. So. It definitely was tough. And I'm guessing also for a child, the young child. It
3: was tough. So. And, I, and I remember too, like, because she had to stop working because she was so afraid of you know, because with low calcium, it could go to tetany, but then it could go to seizures. It could go to other severe side effects. And so she quit her job just to be with me at all times.
2: And, you know, I'm thinking that you're about to become a parent. And, you know, when we become parents, our view of parenting and our parents really changes. So
3: absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if there's one thing I learned from my mom through navigating, you know, this this illness is advocate, advocate, advocate. Do not be afraid to raise your voice, no matter what, when it comes to your child, because you ultimately know your child best until they know their body best.
2: And your mom was ready to pick up and move to another country to um, get you into a trial and really was out there looking for solutions. Uh, It's very impressive.
3: Yeah. And I mean, with the um, protocol at the NIH, I mean, it was every three months for almost two weeks at times, That we'd be staying at the NIH all the way up in Bethesda. And literally, she lived her life for me. That's probably why I feel like I have such a good quality of life now, (laughs) is because I had that support from her.
2: Yeah. That's very moving. And I hope that you um, thank her on our behalf. I'm sure you thank her on your own, but that's really good to hear. All right. So you went on this, I guess, experimental treatment at NIH. That's why you're at NIH. And um, so what was life like once you started that?
3: It was a game changer. It's interesting because I remember like before I started the injections of the HPTH, you know, That was my normal, you know, not feeling 100%. Like I didn't know any better, right? And once I started the injections and once they figured out my levels, you know, it took some trial error. I just felt like I was able to be a normal kid again, besides having to take shots three to four times a day. But, you know, I personally thought it was so cool that I was part of a research protocol and that was always my show and tell for elementary school was showing what I was doing because I thought I was just this big shot. You know, I just thought it was cool that I would give myself injections and I would feel better and seeing the kidneys improve as well, too, throughout the whole trial, you know, was just amazing.
2: That is wonderful to hear. So then you sort of lived your later childhood on that experimental treatment and did you kind of remain stable? And
3: I did. Yeah, so... I started the protocol at six and around the time of high school. So, like ninth grade, they started me on a pump, like an insulin pump with HPTH. So, it was constantly in my system. And that pump was when I really saw the drastic improvement. My kidney levels went normal. I had, like, even with the injections, I would still have some crashes, you know, kind of like almost like a. An insulin crash when you know you're managing diabetes. But when I had that pump and that constant, you know, medicine in me throughout the hour, it was just tremendous. And sadly, of course, with um, protocols, it ended around the time I was 15. So I was no longer able to get the HPTH due to it not being approved yet by the FDA.
2: So during this time, the time that you're in the trial and you went through puberty and of course there are all kinds of hormonal changes and other changes and I wondered if the ADH1 or your treatment, if there are any issues about that.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I know my team, they were very worried about what puberty was because as we know with ADH1 and even just the hypoparathyroid community, the menstrual cycle can be disrupted. Fertility is an issue. um, So they were definitely worried. But thankfully, that whole side of things, the puberty, all that stuff, it was very normal for me. I was on point. I've had no issues. Um, so I know I'm very lucky that it wasn't even disrupted or touched by the ADH-1. That's
2: really, really good to hear. And you're able to finish school, go to college, university, go on for a graduate study. What else can you tell us about that time of life becoming an adult? And also, I'm guessing managing your ADH-1 on your own instead of your fierce warrior mother managing your condition.
3: I know during high school, it was definitely... That's when I think I started noticing that, you know, wait a second, I definitely do have a condition because up until that point, my mom raised me to be like, you are normal, quote unquote, there is no normal, we know that. But she made sure I had every opportunity, you know, all that stuff. But as I got older, I was like, oh, wait a second, I I need a nap on a Thursday because getting up early three days or four days a week, I'm like fatigued. Mm. So that's when I really had to start listening to my body and knowing that as much as I want to do these sports, like I loved swimming. I loved it, but there was so much running involved in high school. I couldn't keep up. I was having crashes even on a pump. So that was kind of hard to kind of navigate and kind of comes, come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. But I remember having, you know, support from friends too in high school and you know my mom always made sure and i made sure too to educate my friends and they always had tums in their car when we would go off places and Mm -hmm. you know just be honest and the way i would explain it to you in high school especially was it's like diabetes but with calcium Mm -hmm. you know if i'm low i'm gonna be you know i might be in tetany but i'm gonna also be kind of cranky and i'm gonna be kind of spacey and kind of you know i'm gonna be off so maybe Offer me a glass of milk or things like that to kind of see if that's what's going on. And, you know, college, I mean, it was, you know, I felt like I had a better handle of things. I didn't live on campus in college. I um, lived off Mm. campus with my parents. I drove to and from to just kind of avoid, you know, the financial hassle of all that. Just having more, like, freedom and things like that, I was really able to kind of figure out what worked with me with my condition and managing it, like scheduling medicine, um, having to adjust, like, when I would be changing my pump or when I would give an injection based on classes. You know, that was really important to me, and, you know, I made sure even during college, you know, typically that's when... young Young ones go off and experiment and have fun and party, I made sure to stay clear of that because I wanted to make sure to keep myself as healthy as possible because I didn't know how I would react to it.
2: And you had learned the lessons about, as you were saying, waking up three days in a row, then you're really tired after that and you needed to make adjustments or adaptations. There have been some limitations caused by ADH1.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely hard and I think the big thing too, like a big limitation is just it being an invisible illness, mm-hmm. we, we, we don't like, we don't wear it, you know, Yeah. and it's hard because, you know, most days, even now, like before the pregnancy, like I was good, you know, I was okay, no issues, but recently a big symptom of this disorder has been kidney stones and kidney situations. So when that happens, or even if I have like low calcium symptoms, some of my like friends are kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, wait, we, we forgot you're sick. Mm. So even just, you know, navigating that and try not to let it, you know, stop me because I'm pretty stubborn. And I mean, I've had this since birth, so I literally know no different. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: So kind of a, a continuation of uh, how you so well described explaining to your friends as a teenager what happens when your calcium level drops and you said that you were cranky you know that you weren't feeling well you needed to take tums and they kind of learned that and again as a as an adult it sounds like you needed to explain that again
3: i almost have to explain it a bit more now because i think you know people see me you know having graduated grad school working a full-time job married all those things they don't see me as jessica with adh1 you know they just see me as jess so when those adh1 symptoms happen or i have these doctor's appointments or i'm fighting with insurance but i have an amazing support system nonetheless especially my husband now i mean Mm -hmm. he's phenomenal with knowing my symptoms like knowing even just looking at me he knows when i'm not feeling well and he'll tell me go to go take a nap just go lay down Mm
1: -hmm.
2: call
3: your doctor text your endocrinologist let her know what's going on
2: really so if you don't mind sharing this um as you became serious with the man who's now your husband i'm gonna guess that he didn't perceive that you had adh1 or a chronic condition right. that you needed to explain it to him and i'm wondering how you did explain it to him and how he reacted
3: i feel like this is just me with having this condition for my whole life it's like my conversation starter i don't know why it always is like my go to like i as much as it's a headache i'm proud of it like it's made me stronger it's made me who i am and me being in, in the protocols has helped future generations mm-hmm. so i always kind of start with that and he actually is type 1 diabetic so he had a pump uh-huh. so that was kind of my segue because i also had a pump mm-hmm. except for mine was pink
2: mm-hmm. so we
3: kind of started talking about that and then he started asking more about my condition and he started asking, like, well, what does that mean with the calcium? You know, do you test it at home? Things like that. You know, he started becoming more intrigued by it.
2: I'm guessing that you are each looking after each other now because uh, diabetes also requires yes. a lot of management and occasional adjustments yep. of medication or watching blood sugar levels yep. and yep. eating a glass of orange juice once in a while if blood sugar drops precipitously. And so it sounds like... Uh, You found each other as people who can really understand what it's like to live really well, but with a condition that can have a big impact on you if your levels are off.
3: Yep, absolutely. And like, that's why I think too, we work well together because we both understand that we have more good days than bad days, but we have that support system when we have those bad days because we get it.
2: Yeah. Now... You mentioned community before, and I know your mom was a really big support and your husband is also now. And I wonder, have you engaged with the community of people living with ADH1 and related conditions? And
3: Yeah. Yeah, I actually have. So while in the protocol for the NIH, I became pen pals with a few of those that actually live in Iceland, as well as another girl that grew up a few miles down the road from me um, that also had it diagnosed a year before me, same pediatric endocrinologist, everything. So we kind of bonded over that. And, you know, we keep in touch now, even now through Facebook. Uh And I am on the Hypoparathyroid Association. Uh Um, You know, they do amazing things for just awareness, for all the different types, all the variations. So, you know, just, you know, constantly seeing everyone's story um, and seeing how you can have the label of the ADH1 or even just hypopara and just how it's so different for everybody.
2: Yeah. It sounds like it's been useful to you. And I'm going to guess that you've been useful to other people as well through the organization and through your contacts around the world and around the neighborhood. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. It, it's so funny. Such a wide variety.
2: <laughs> yeah. This is a time to think about the future you're an expectant mom so there's a lot of future thinking and what are your thoughts about the future living with ADHD? adh1
3: i am incredibly hopeful just having adh1 has made me have so much hope You know, through everything, all the ups, the downs, it's just hoping for the next thing. And, you know, with just new breakthroughs happening, more awareness of the ADH1, um, the genetic testing happening more frequently earlier on is just so remarkable. I'm just so hopeful to be able to see some big changes in treatment, you know, and be able to engage in those options, as well as if my son does have it and the testing's already been set up and we're ready to go once he's born, you know, I feel much better knowing that in even probably you know relatively soon for him mm-hmm. if he does have it there's gonna be much more options and even for me and i had you know better options than previously diagnosed people
2: yeah yeah and you and your husband are are involved in a pregnancy where you both have conditions that may have some genetic links adh1 certainly does and uh, that'll be an adventure of sorts to see how things happen, but it also sounds like you're both really prepared for whatever, uh, nature brings. Absolutely.
3: Yep. Exactly. Cause I mean, we can't fight it, you know, it, it is what it is yeah. and, yeah. you know, just to re- remain to have that hope and that faith that, you know, it all work out. And I mean, yeah, I look at my, my story, what I've been through, you know, according to that urologist when I was six, I should not, I should not be here. So. Here I am. Every everything's going good.
2: Yeah, that's wonderful to hear. And I was just thinking about that physician who said there's no hope to your mother, which is, of course, the absolute worst thing or one of the worst things to say to a mother of a child. But look at you now. You're definitely here. You're about to have a child. You're you have a career. You're married. You're living a full and uh, complete and productive life. Your story is one where you've really overcome the challenges of ADHD. One or You are overcoming them every day.
3: I always say, I don't have, our ADH1 doesn't have me, I have ADH1.
2: Yes, you haven't let it stop you, and Mm. that's really impressive. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story. This has really been um, enormously helpful and educational for me and others listening. Uh, Is there anything else you would like to add or anything we didn't get to?
3: I guess, you know, it's just for anybody that has, you know, any sort of invisible chronic illness that is rare, that is overlooked, try to look for the little victories, the little wins every day, because they're there. They're just hard to see, because I really think if it wasn't for the hope that I had, i would not be here you know not only my hope the hope of everybody around me
2: i love that try to look for the little victories that is a great uh mantra for anyone living with a long-term illness condition could benefit from living life well with a chronic condition is probably best done through a series of small victories so thank you that's very helpful
3: absolutely thank you so much for this opportunity
1: really enjoyed listening to Jessica's story. She has such an interesting and inspiring and really hopeful message. She's overcome a lot and has this positive outlook despite the challenges that she's faced.
2: Mandy, I so agree with you. I just want to point out Jessica talks about participating in a clinical trial and taking various medicines, and it's important to say that those have nothing to do with BridgeBio or any research programs or clinical trials of BridgeBio. They are part of Jessica's story about living with ADH1, part of her journey, and uh, people living with rare diseases, of course, seek out treatment and seek to participate in clinical trials. But what she's described is very separate from BridgeBio.
1: Thanks, David. And I think her participation in clinical trials throughout her life has guided her and given her that confidence to be an advocate for herself and inspire others to be an advocate for themselves. I think she summed it up really well with the phrase, advocate, 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 regardless of your situation and your circumstances, know yourself, trust your body, trust what you're feeling and have that willingness to speak up and choose a different path if the one that you're on isn't working
2: well really the challenge of living with this condition she was thankfully diagnosed very young but had a lot of problems as a child and when she described the technique the um terrible cramping she experienced and really a difficult condition to live with but i have to say and i know if this is because i'm a parent but i was really moved by what jessica told us about her mother that her mother was really willing to drop anything and go anywhere in an attempt to seek anything that would help Jessica. She was willing to go to another country, move to another city, and I hope that I would do that as a parent. I think I know, Mandy, that you've done that as a parent. It just demonstrates that parents of children living with rare diseases do everything possible to help their children. And I found that really moving.
1: And I have no doubt in my mind, David, that Jessica, as she becomes a mother, will be more than willing to provide whatever resources and support her child needs.
2: It was really a pleasure speaking to Jessica, to speak to Dr. Mary Scott Roberts, and of course, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Mandy.
1: Thank you, David. And thank you again to our guests. And a very special thanks to our producer, Amy Brooks. To learn more about ADH1, check out the Hypoparathyroid Association at hypopara.org. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thanks so much for being with us today. I hope you'll join us for our next conversation on Rare.